Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. So today's talk, Who Do You Say That I Am? Liturgy and the Meaning of Life. We're going to go back into this question of what is liturgy? It's a really fundamental question that we can explore from different angles. We had a wonderful presentation from Dr. Marshall this morning. I'd like to give us a few other perspectives that are complementary to what we were learning about this morning for ways of defining and celebrating liturgy. So there's a particularly important theologian from the 20th century who has a lot to say about liturgical theology. His name is Cipriano Vagagini. He was an Italian Benedictine monk. He was highly influenced by St. Thomas Aquinas in his way of, of studying the liturgy and trying to define it. And he also played a major role in drafting the document on the liturgy from Vatican II, Sacrosancta Concilium. So his way of understanding liturgy has been very influential for the church. So he gives one definition of liturgy, which is the sanctification and the worship of the church actualized in sensible and efficacious signs. So I'm going to say that once more, and then I'm going to go into each of those words so we can understand what he's trying to get at more deeply. Liturgy is the sanctification and worship of the church actualized in sensible and efficacious signs. So what is sanctification? I'd like to draw your attention to a passage from Leviticus, chapter 11, verse 44, which St. Peter quotes in his first letter, 1 Peter 1.16, Be holy, for I am holy. So God is holiness itself. It's proper to God to be holy. And we are given a share in God's nature through our participation in the liturgy, a share in his holiness. It's not something we achieve by our own efforts. It's the result of God's grace. There's nothing we can do to grasp holiness for ourselves, but we are invited to freely participate in God's grace. So this definition starts by emphasizing the holiness of God. The next word is worship. Worship is our response to that holiness of God. It's our response to his very existence, to his goodness, to his holiness. It's proper to God, first of all, to be. That's simply what he is. He defines himself in the book of Exodus as I am who am. His existence is his nature, and he's always existed. Think about last night, ever-living God. God says in the dialogues with St. Catherine of Siena, I am he who is and you are she who is not. So Catherine's existence is only there because God has given it to her. She doesn't exist on her own. So all of us exist only insofar as we've been created by God, and God gives us a share in his being. In him we live and move and have our being, 
as St. Paul tells us in the Acts of the Apostles, quoting a Roman uh, Greek poet. We can never fully repay God for the very gift of existence itself, not to mention all the other things he does for us. We can't have a relationship of strict justice with God. Justice is where we give equally in return for what we've received. So if I give you $10, you and justice are due to give me $10. That's an equality. We can establish that. But if God has given us everything, we can never fully reach back to that. But we can try. We can give him something. So the Psalms capture this. How can I repay the Lord for his goodness to me? The cup of salvation I will raise. I will call on the Lord's name. So our worship of God is reaching out. It's trying to do something, not quite justice, but reaching out to it. This is called by St. Thomas Aquinas, a potential part of justice. It shares in something of what justice is, but it's not the full thing itself. Another form of this potential part of justice is piety. That's what St. Thomas says. We have relationships with our parents. We can never give back to them the gift of existence, but we can honor them. We can love them. And so piety and, and worship or religion, uh, these are kind of two different things, one to our natural parents and the other to our supernatural creator. God doesn't need our worship. God is infinitely happy in himself, but it's good for us to worship him. He wants us to worship him, not because he's lonely. He's fully happy with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit ever in love with one another. But they want to draw us into that inner life of love. We worship God not just for instrumental reasons, not because we get something out of it, not because it's a kind of cool ritual. I mean, that's part of it, but that's not the ultimate reason. Ultimately, we do it because it's good to do so. So think of St. Peter saying to Jesus at the Transfiguration, Lord, it's good for us to be here. To sort of just sit back and accept and, and be joyful in the particular moment that we're in. I really like the films of a director called Whit Stillman. Uh, he's done a, a couple of films that are really beautiful reflections on different parts of modern life and its challenges. And many of his films feature dancing in them. And once I was at an interview where somebody was asking him, uh, Mr. Stillman, many of your films feature dancing. What, what does dancing represent for you? And he looked kind of dumbfounded at the uh, person in the audience and said, dancing is wonderful. So he just, he, he wanted to express, you know, this is just a way of being. So liturgy is partially just existing. It's finding the fullness of who we are, entering into that relationship with God. Think about King David saying to his wife, who's mad at him for dancing in front of the slave girls as he's leading the ark back into the city. But I was dancing for the Lord. It's that same sense of wonder, of wanting to do something for God. There's always, of course, a danger of idolatry and self-worship, but the more we can let our, our desire to worship what's beyond us be purified by God's revelation, the more we're going to be able to enter into a true harmony. So those first two words are sanctification and worship. And then the other two are sensible and efficacious. So liturgy is sensible because it makes use of our bodies. It makes use of our senses. We don't just think a whole imaginary world. We could think about the best possible liturgy in my head, where every, every acolyte does exactly what they're supposed to do. Every cantor sings perfectly. Uh, nobody is, uh, is making noise. Nobody's distracted. But that's not actually a liturgy. That's just my imagination. Liturgy is done by real people who have limitations as well as strengths. 
Liturgy can't just be a purely mental action, partially because it's a communal thing. It's something we do together. But we do want to make use of everything that we are. We want to make use of our bodies. The very posture we're in helps to uh, draw our attention to God. We can also make use of our voices to think about how uh, people train their voices so carefully to be able to sing beautifully. The church fathers talk about how uh, if you sing to please an, a regular audience, you would put a lot of effort into it. But if you're trying to praise God, you want to even put more, more of your life into that action. Think about how we draw on the best of what humanity can come up with as part of our worship. So art, music, architecture, all of these things are ways of making use of external things, not for their own sake, not for idolatry, but for the sake of drawing our minds up to God. So we do this because of who we are. We're human beings. We're not just empty souls. We're, we're embodied. Liturgy is efficacious. So it brings about what it intends to do. It achieves something. It's not just a pure symbol. It's not just uh, done for its own sake. Uh, it's done for the sake of bringing about something. So this is especially true of the sacraments, because with the seven sacraments, which we'll go into in more detail in a moment, we're assured by the church that they'll always achieve what they're intended to be, what they're intended for, so long as they're done in the right way by the right sort of minister. So this doesn't depend on the holiness of the minister. This is also true, though, of all liturgical actions of the church, because they're actions of Christ. They're, we're not alone in the liturgy. Christ is acting in and through us. So think about the words of Isaiah in chapter 55. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall do what pleases me, achieving the end for which I sent it. So the more we're conforming ourselves to Christ, who is the word of God, the more he's able to bring about what he wants to bring about in our lives. But he doesn't want to save us without our cooperation. He wants to draw us into this work. So liturgy is a cooperation between God and humanity. First of all, I'd like to consider the Trinity as a model of what we're ultimately aiming at. We have to make a distinction. God doesn't worship himself. The Father doesn't worship the Son. The Son doesn't worship the Father. The, the three persons of the Trinity love one another, and they know one another. And they, they can't worship one another because they are equal. Uh, but rather they, they enter into a love uh, that, uh, that fully gives, um, gives themselves happiness. So they have eternal beatitude. So one of the first uh, lines in the Catechism of the Catholic Church is God, it, who's infinitely happy in himself in a plan of sheer goodness, decided to create humanity to share in his love. So God doesn't need us, but he wants us to share in this overflowing love. Jesus himself puts forward the Trinity uh, as a model for our love in John chapter 17. He's primarily talking about the relationship of the Son and the Father in that context. But he's saying, as I love the Father and as the Father loves me, so you should love one another, as well as so you should draw, be drawn into this love of the Father. So Jesus is the one who's able to make us part of the Trinity itself, to share in the Trinity's inner love and knowledge. So that's the ultimate aim of all of our worship, to be going into this knowledge and love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But God created us. He created the whole world. And creation itself, in a sense, is the start of liturgy as such. 
So think about how in the book of Genesis, with the six days of creation and then the day of rest, there's actually this is a tremendously liturgical passage. Every detail of it is is very ritualized. So God is saying the same pattern over and over again, just like we have these patterns in our worship. There's a great calmness and rituality to all of these steps. And think about how after each day of creation, God sees that it was good. You know, that very repetition is part of what makes liturgy something that's meaningful for us. We kind of know what we're expecting by day number four or day number five. But then there's a surprise. After the creation of humanity, after the creation of man and woman, God sees that it is very good. So there's this crescendo. The liturgy comes to a point of fullness. And creation itself is uh, described in the scriptures as liturgy itself. So think about the lines in scripture about how the heavens proclaim the glory of God and the firmaments proclaim his handiwork. So everything of creation is pointing towards God, praising God. And Jesus calls us to preach the gospel to every creature. So everything is meant to be part of this cosmic worship. The cycles of creation are the backdrop for all of our liturgy. So the yearly cycle of the earth around the sun is a fundamental starting point for our liturgical year. So think about how we celebrate the seasons each year. So this this yearly cycle of 365.242424, this is is all part of how we uh, draw our attention to God again and again each year. And then there's the monthly cycle. So this is also a big part of our liturgy because of the way the Jewish people would use the lunar calendar to calculate their feasts. So this is still how we calculate Easter itself by the complex um, interaction between the solar and lunar calendars. I've been reading a wonderful novel by Angela Thurkel, who is a great 20th century British novelist. And she has this funny line describing a particular character as, he's the sort of person that knows when Easter will be. A man who knows that knows anything. So partially she's capturing, it's, it's a very confusing system how we calculate Easter. Uh, and most of us just rely on uh, a big list that somebody else did. So anyway, uh, but to think about how this is kind of re- reacting to the complexity of the world and the universe itself. And then there's the daily rotation of the earth. This is night and day. This forms a fundamental part of our whole liturgical life. The liturgy of the hours are commemorating these different cycles of the day. So we've got all these different natural cycles, the year, the month, the day. But then think about how the week is actually not a natural cycle. The week is something that is really the result of revelation, or we might say revelation taking up human practices, but ultimately it's a revelation of God's creative potential and also his rest. So the seventh day, the Sabbath, is when we enter into his rest. So we've got all of these natural things and then this supernatural week. And this is this complex network of creation that we're navigating every time we celebrate the liturgy. Liturgy is ultimately about harmony. It's about being at one with all of these different cycles, being at one with the creator of all of these things, being in tune with God, in tune with the world, and through this, being in tune with ourselves. So that's a beautiful way of seeing kind of the harmony. But of course, we all experience disharmony all the time. We're not at tune with ourselves. We have conflicts with one another. We struggle to do what we know is right. This is the result of our fallen human condition. 
So the fall, as represented in the book of Genesis, is really a breakdown of worship. It's a loss of the harmony that's initially established between God and humanity. So the devil says to Eve, you will be like gods if you eat this uh, fruit. So it's to not worship the one true God. It's to make ourselves gods, to uh, uh, try to achieve holiness on our own terms rather than respecting the right order of creation. But of course, God isn't going to be undone by uh, our sin. Uh, as we heard last night, his providence never fails. He has a way of bringing us back to himself. So God's gracious revelation of himself to humanity gradually unfolds. In the letter to the Hebrews, the opening two verses are, In times past, God spoke in partial and various ways to our ancestors through the prophets. In these last days, he spoke to us through a son. So the word of God, Christ himself, coming to us, becoming incarnate, is speaking the fullness of God's revelation to us. God speaks everything to us in the word. God has a beautiful divine pedagogy. That's how Dei Verbum, the document of Vatican II on Revelation, describes the way the Old Testament is pedagogy. It's leading us gradually to the fullness of the truth. God gradually reveals himself to us in ways that correspond to our human impulses and to different stages of cultural development. So with the revelation to the Jewish people, God is taking up and purifying human cultural practices of ritual purity and sacrifice. He's elevating them to be shares, uh, uh, instruments of his revelation, instruments of his holiness. But of course, the Old Testament also contains critiques of outward worship, of outward sacrifice. So God is also showing us there's an inadequacy to a purely external way of trying to come to peace with him. So ultimately, what we're being pointed towards is the full integrity of the external and the internal, this restoration of the integrity of creation itself. Another way that God is teaching us, especially through the Old Testament, is through the Psalms. So the Psalms are inspired texts written by human authors, but with divine inspiration guiding them, through which God is teaching us how to pray. He's encompassing the whole range of human emotions and experiences and showing how they impel us to God. So in the, in the book of Psalms, you can really find a psalm for any moment of your life, any experience you're having. Part of what's beautiful about the Liturgy of the Hours is that we pray this whole range of psalms, and sometimes I don't identify with the emotion that the psalm is saying, but it's not just me. I'm praying for you as well. I'm praying for everyone. And so I'm part of something bigger than myself when I read the psalms, not just as personal devotion, but also as a minister of the church, as a member of the church. So it's really Jesus's incarnation that's the turning point in the restoration of uh, this harmony that God wants. Remember, Jesus says about marriage, in the beginning, it was not so. He wants to restore us to his original plan. So in the incarnation, the son of God comes to dwell among us. He becomes like us in all things but sin so that we might become like him to truly become children of God. In the Alleluia verse uh, that we'll hear tomorrow at Mass, we hear about there, he gave them the power to become children of God. This is a power. It's an immense privilege. There's a beautiful axiom that the church fathers proclaim, which is that anything that the Son did not assume, 
could not be redeemed. If there was some part of our humanity that Christ refused to touch, then that part couldn't be really integral again. Jesus is true God and true man. And through this integrity of the two natures united in the person of the word, he forms a bridge between the divine and the human. And this is ultimately what liturgy is all about. It's sharing in that divine unity, that unity of humanity and divinity in Jesus. Jesus is the mediator between God and man, St. Paul teaches us. He's the great high priest who restores in himself the gulf between the human and the divine. One thing that I always like to emphasize is Christ's priesthood is based on his humanity. So Christ isn't a priest because he's God. Christ is a priest because he is man. And it's, uh, that, that's what enables us to share in his priesthood and then become part of his whole plan of, of unity. So Jesus Christ in his person fulfills the definitions of liturgy that we started with today. So Jesus, because he is God, is holy. And as man, he is also holy. There's nothing about him that is uh, touched by sin. That's part of the reason for the immaculate conception. So the, uh, that, that Mary is conceived without sin in anticipation of Christ's merits as a way of preparing for us a, a fully restored humanity. So Jesus is holy. And Jesus shows us how to worship. As I mentioned last night, he himself worships in the temple, and he himself spends time in prayer adoring God. Again, it's his humanity, his human nature that's adoring God, but that's fully united with his divinity because they never act uh, apart. And think about those final words of the canon, which we were hearing this morning as well. We worship God through him, with him, and in him. So that him here is, is Christ. Everything we're doing is through Christ. Jesus is sensible. That is to say, he is someone who his disciples were able to see, to hear, to touch. So First uh, John chapter 1, the opening verses, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerns the word of life. So Christ is directly sensible. But even after his ascension to the Father, he's accessing us through, uh, through the church, through the ministers he has put in place. So we're able, even though we can't see him directly, we're able to have some contact with him in an ongoing way. The first preface of the Christmas season uh, articulates this mystery in a really beautiful way. For in the mystery of the word made flesh, a new light of your glory has shone upon the eyes of our mind, so that as we recognize in him God made visible, we may be caught up through him in love of things invisible. So through encountering Christ, first of all in his humanity, but now through the sacraments, through these external signs, we're being lifted up beyond the signs themselves to share in God's inner nature. And then finally, Christ is efficacious. He's able to do what he promises. So this is why it's so important throughout the Gospels that he's predicting his death and resurrection. So he's not caught off guard by it. And he doesn't, it's not important that he not know whether he's going to come back to life or not. Uh, rather, he, he fully knows, he, he gives himself to the passion, knowing that the Father will raise him. Uh, so he's able to do what he promises. 
there's a beautiful theological term, theandric actions. So that's where the theos, the God, and the andros, the man, work together. Christ himself, when he heals someone, he's doing an external gesture with his human body, but his human body alone can't heal somebody. It's his divinity that's able to heal. So Christ himself in his human and divine ministry on earth is accomplishing salvation among us. And that's what he passes down into the sacraments. So the seven sacraments of the church are ways of Christ maintaining his presence among us. In most of the sacraments, his presence is there by means of his power. He acts through them. In the Eucharist, he acts through it, but he also makes himself substantially present. He's with us in an even higher way uh, through the Eucharist. The most fundamental sacraments are those which are clearly established by Christ in the gospel. So these would be baptism and the Eucharist. These are the ones that we share. Uh, we certainly share baptism with all Christian denominations. Uh, Eucharist is something that many denominations will practice still. We might have different understandings of what that means. But the reason why these are shared by different Christian groups is because they're so explicit. They're so clear in the gospel, even though we might differ as to understanding how they work exactly. But the church gradually comes to understand that Christ's power, Christ's presence, is mediated through what we can identify as seven sacraments. So God can work any way he wants. He can work outside of the visible sacramental economy. He's always working through the church, but he can work, he can make me holy in any way he wants. He can uh, save anyone through the church. But he wants to bind himself to the sacraments in a way where we can know that he's encountering us. We can know that something is going to happen when we go through this, not by magic, but by God's power, by God's love. So the church uh, defines these sacraments as being basically in three groups. So there's what we call the sacraments of Christian initiation. So these are baptism, which starts, it's the door to all the sacraments, confirmation, which strengthens baptism, and then the Eucharist, which completes our Christian initiation and which we're able to receive again and again as a way of maintaining that presence with Christ. And then there's the sacraments of healing. Uh, so these are uh, penance and recon or penance, also known as reconciliation or confession, and then anointing of the sick. I'll be going into these in a little bit more detail in a moment. And then the third category is the sacraments at the service of communion and mission. So these are holy orders and matrimony. So these seven sacraments, they can be divided in this theoretical way into uh, the different kind of tasks or needs we have. But what I'm going to use for the rest of the talk is a beautiful image from Thomas Aquinas that shows how these seven sacraments correspond to the whole range of human experience, the whole range of a human life. So all of the sacraments are acts of sanctification and worship that make use of sensible signs, outward gestures, outward things to bring about an inward reality that's represented by them. So that's bringing all these definitions together. So liturgy is a lifelong task. It's something that we never finish. Uh, it's not like reading a book and then we, we set it aside. We have to go through it again and again. Some sacraments are done once for all. We can never repeat baptism or confirmation because they mark us in such an indelible way. But the other sacraments, um, to greater or lesser extents, are able to be experienced again and again as we need them. They can mark our whole life. But they're designed in a way that really accompanies every moment of our life as well. 
So in the Summa Theologiae, in the third part, uh, which is about Christ and the sacraments, in question 65, where Thomas is introducing us to the sacraments in general, he develops an analogy of how the sacraments correspond to the life of the body. So there's the life of the soul, which the sacraments are ultimately aimed at, but this corresponds with all the different stages of human development and human life. So he starts off by talking about how perfection or completion in human life can be considered in two different ways. So we can think about the individual. What does an individual need in order to flourish? And then what does a whole community need? And of course, no human is uh, completely alone, but we really, it, it's important to make a distinction between myself and others. Uh, there's relevance to that, even if ultimately we want to look beyond ourselves. So for Thomas, the liturgy responds to our needs both as individuals, but also as members of a human society and members of a spiritual society, the church. So when he's talking about the individual needs that we have, he goes through uh, different stages of human development. So he talks about how there's, first of all, we're all born. We have to uh, come into the world somehow. But then we grow. We're not complete when we're born. Of course, everything is there in potential, but we have to grow and develop. And then finally, we have to be nourished in order for this to happen. And the nourishment is something that goes on and on. We never stop eating. We might stop growing uh, taller as we, we get older. We might continue to grow wider. But uh, the, the nourishment is something that's never going to go away. So for these three basic needs, uh, Thomas says that the sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist are given to us. So baptism is the opening to new life, not of the body, but of the spirit. And confirmation strengthens that new life. It makes one not only able to receive, but also to give. So think about how a baby is completely needy. The baby needs always to be fed. The baby needs to be taken care of. But as a child grows and develops, uh, hopefully that child is gradually more and more able to do things for himself or for herself and gradually to become mature, to become more independent. Again, not separate from everyone else, but, but able to do one's own tasks. So confirmation is related to that. Uh, it's a strengthening, um, a, a maturation of that initial baptismal uh, grace. And Thomas talks about how baptism lets us receive the other sacraments, but confirmation is part of what lets us bear witness to the faith. So I, I tend to think of the liturgical action of what we often call the common priesthood of the faithful uh, is really based on not only baptism, but also on confirmation. Because you're able, as confirmed Christians, to really witness to your faith, both in the liturgy and in your daily lives. But this nourishment of the Eucharist is uh, a sine qua non. We always need to be uh, returning to the Eucharist. So these, this is one set of individual needs that we're all going to go through at various uh, stages of our Christian development. But Thomas says, in addition to these kind of more positive things, there's also uh, a negative need, uh, a need for removal of defects that might come from time to time. So we all uh, are not impassable. We, we are suffering in various ways. Sometimes we get sick. Sometimes we make mistakes. And uh, we can think of this on a purely human level. 
But of course, this is also true on a spiritual level. Sometimes we fall into sin. Sometimes we uh, we lo- start to lose hope that uh, God is with us. And so God has given us the sacraments of penance and the sacrament of the anointing of the sick as ways of responding to these remedies, uh, to these defects, to this uh, to have this this way of living out. Um, God's grace in these moments of weakness. So we can think of penance as really uh, removing uh, the, the, the obstacles that we ourselves place in the way of God working in our lives. The sacrament of anointing of the sick has several effects. One of them is, is strengthening our hope that God is with us. It can also take away sin, but it, it really is primarily about making ourselves uh, more and more at one with God. So in one case, uh, as we prepare for death, but even before that, to be when, when we're in moments of great sickness, to have the, the sense that the church is with us, the church is praying for us, and that Christ is there with us as well. So then finally, we have communal needs. Uh, so this is separate from these individual needs. So any human society, if you're going to have more than one person, is going to need to have some way of organizing relationships between those persons. So we need to have order with the community. Of course, there's different ways of establishing this, but some form of governing, some form of having uh, clear relationships. And then also humans as animals uh, procreate. We give birth to new children. And uh, this is a kind of human need. Uh, it's a human need to, to create, to continue the species. But it's also um, something that's able to bring great joy to families as well. So responding to these two basic human needs, uh, Thomas says we have the sacraments of holy orders and matrimony. So uh, we need to be clear, holy orders is not meant to govern all aspects of every society. So the church is not intended to be the, uh, the replacement for the government, but rather within the life of the church, uh, there's a balance between uh, perhaps clerical and, and lay roles. But uh, ultimately, the, the sacramental economy is rooted in the priesthood. Uh, in bishops organizing local churches and delegating priests to be able to serve the faithful. So all of this is done uh, for the sake of the other, not for the sake of the one who is doing it. And then matrimony is responding to this human uh, need, this human reality as well. And it's helping to elevate this human experience of raising a family and putting God at the center of it. So one of the ways of understanding matrimony as a sacrament is to think of Christ's presence at the wedding feast of Cana. So uh, by being there, by blessing that water and turning that water into wine, he's taking this natural good of human marriage and he's elevating it to the dignity of a sacrament. With holy orders, it's interesting. Uh, the Council of Trent says that when Jesus says, do this in memory of me, he's establishing the priesthood. He's uh, establishing uh, the way in which this sacrament is going to be carried out throughout all time. So Christ is responding to this whole range of human experiences, and he's allowing us to share in his work of elevating them, bringing all of these things to God. So um, I'd like now to turn to the back side of your your pamphlet or your handout. Um, I've got a a poem from Shakespeare that I love. Um, It's from As You Like It. Uh, It's known as The Seven Ages of Man. And the seven ages of man don't exactly correspond to the seven sacraments, but I think they're a good way for thinking about um, the way that God enters into every moment of our life. So I'm going to read this and then just say a few concluding words, and then we'll have time for some questions. All the world's a stage. 
and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. And one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first the infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms, and then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like a snail unwillingly to school. And then the lover, sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress' elbow eyebrow. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, in fair round belly with good capon lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances, and so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank, and his big manly voice turning, turning again towards childish treble, childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion, sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. So there's a lot to go into there that we don't really have time for, but what I uh, want to draw your attention to is just the complexity of each human life. Each human life has all of these different experiences, not, perhaps not every single one he describes here, but that we're going, we're the same somehow, and yet we're always changing. We're always being changed by our circumstances. So the liturgy is part of how we can live out our lives. Live your life well, as another great poet says. Liturgy uh, is part of what allows us to live our life well. There's a tremendous richness in our liturgical tradition as Catholics. Liturgy is able to sustain us throughout our whole life, gradually transforming us. We come again and again to read the same passages of Scripture, to pray the same prayers, uh, to experience the same sacraments, and yet we ourselves are always coming to them as at new stages of our life, whether it be from day to day or from year to year. And these texts are also transforming us. These actions are transforming us. Liturgy is ultimately a mirror through which we come to see ourselves more clearly. Not ourselves alone. We're not just gazing at ourselves. We're contemplating the image and likeness of God in which we've been made. And the sacraments are an essential part of that process of cleaning the mirror, of letting it become more and more a reflection of the glory of God, which we're called to share in. Thank you. Um, you describe your liturgy as a, a lifelong task that really brings about what it intends um, and what the sacraments are done for themselves. Um, I'm wondering how that uh, fits in with their maybe complements the thinking of Gordini as describing liturgy as, as play, mm -hmm. something that doesn't really have purpose in the world sense of um, something that has like a, a means to an end. 
Right. Yeah, I mean, I would just return to this. Um, to me, the idea of liturgy as dance kind of makes more sense than liturgy as play, uh, because um, it's it's this way of living yourself to the fullness. You know, it's 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 a human action that's going beyond uh, a purely momentary or needful thing. But but play, I guess, I guess for me, play, um, I think we're, it's limited if we think of play in a child childlike way or childish way. But maybe if we think of musical playing, like I myself play the Irish flute and I, I play together with friends all the time. And uh, it's a tremendous way of spending time together. You're, you're doing nothing, but you're, you're really, you're living your life well. Um, so I, I think there is a sense to that. But I think, um, yeah, to be able to see that it's not just, um, it's, it's not limited in the way that um, it's not meaningless, it's meaningful. To, to engage in liturgy in this way. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I think the the life of monks and nuns in particular, uh, where they're really devoted to the divine office. So Dominicans, we we pray regularly, but for us, it's it's not just a means to an end, but it's not our primary purpose. Whereas uh, for, say, the Benedictine tradition, for them, the liturgy is the reason they exist. And I think all of us share in that to some extent, but less explicitly. Uh, but to be able to see there's this tremendous value, even if it's not... Uh, accomplishing something. How would you recommend the way that play the intro fully internally as much and as you're able to have the privilege of like playing in the right office, but and I, I just have this beauty and or that appreciation for the beauty of that and I want to enter into that more deeply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, one thing is to recognize uh, that liturgy is is connected to our actual circumstances. So um, St. Francis de Sales has a wonderful line, which is, um, it would be ridiculous to try to do something that doesn't fit your actual circumstances. So if your circumstances of life don't allow you to spend two hours in prayer each day, uh, then it, it would be ridiculous to do that. You know, you have to live your reality. But um, so what the church demands or, or requests of every Christian is actually rather limited, you know, to take one hour out of our week to for Sunday mass and to uh, live out these other things. But we're we're not called to just do the minimum. We're called to go beyond that if we can. But first of all, to, to recognize that we don't, we shouldn't feel obliged to do something that we're not obliged to do. Um, but I think to see that uh, we can more and more harmonize our lives as we feel called to uh, I think the liturgy, the hours, is something where um, something like the iBreviary app on the phone, I think, is a tremendous gift to the church because it makes it very easy to do it uh, and to kind of sink in with it when you have time. Uh, but so I would say um, if you feel called in that way uh, to incorporate more liturgical prayer into your life, I think that's a really beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit that he He wants to draw different people into, uh, but to do it in a way that that fits with your life. Does that make sense? So uh, one, one thing I learned from a pastor I worked with for a few years was liturgy is beautiful if it's connected to the reality of the people who do it. So this came up in the context of um, a music program. So how much music should a parish spend, uh, excuse me, how much money should a parish spend on the music program? And part of the answer is they should spend as much as they can. I think music is a really important part of the liturgy. But if you're spending money you don't have, for the liturgy, uh, then you're not, it's not actually beautiful. 
it's kind of make believe in a sense. You're, if you're going into debt to to pay for more than what you can really uh, afford, then there's a lack of harmony in a sense. So I, I would make an analogy with that and and lay participation in the liturgy beyond the minimum. So if you're somehow ruining your life by uh, by this, uh, you know that's not actually fitting. You know, but um, I'm not saying yeah, liturgy is uh, it's a gateway drug. You know, you'll get more and more into it, uh, but uh, to do it in a way where where you really are balancing your life. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about like seeing ourselves in a liturgy, like in a liturgy we get to ourselves in a mirror, but over time, like we see God in, in that. Uh, how do we see ourselves like, in the liturgy? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is that um, it's us who are active in it. So, um, you know, when I go to confession, for instance, I'm that's a sort of very clear mirror. It's a chance for me to to see the way I've failed to grow since my last confession, as well as the way God's continuing to work in my life. Uh, each time I go to mass, um, in a sense, I'm given a measuring rod. You know, am I am I living out what this gospel passage is saying? Am I really, um, I, I think that's part of it. And then to hear, hear our own voices, to hear what I'm saying when I, when I say, I believe in God, the father almighty, do I, you know, it's a, uh, that's what I mean. It's a, it's a chance to kind of really, uh, let the liturgy be constantly challenging you. Not, not in the sense that we should be in an adversarial relationship with God. That's not the point. It's rather, um, how, how is this helping me to, to become the fullness of who I'm called to be? Yeah. So what did you mean when you said uh, that the sacraments accompany every moment of our life? Mm-hmm. Maybe a better way of putting it would be the sacraments uh, accompany the most important stages of our life. Uh, so um, moments of kind of, you know, marriage or death or the birth of a new child. These are important events, you know, um, leaving Christianity aside. Every culture has ways of marking these particular uh, transitions in people's lives. And so uh, the liturgy is partially responding to that human need to commemorate. Uh, But I would say in one sense, the Eucharist and uh, confession maybe are the ones that most accompany every moment of our lives because they, those are the ones in which, it's the Eucharist that's sustaining us through our more ordinary experiences and it's reconciliation that's helping us to really, really be honest with ourselves. You know, nobody, it, uh, confession is not a zero sum game. You know, I'm not competing against you. I remember when I was preparing for my own first confession, I had this notion that, uh, I should pay attention to how long the other kids took in the confessional and the ones who took less time, uh, I would be better to be friends with, you know, cause, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was like 10, so give me a break, you know, uh, or seven maybe. Uh, so that's obviously not the right way of thinking about it. Right. Cause it's actually the opposite. Um, well, you can also go too far. Um, but, uh, but the point is that, um, that these things, the very reason why there's utter secrecy, why a priest is never in any circumstance allowed to reveal what he's heard, is to preserve the freedom of the person involved, uh, because we're not comparing ourselves to others. Uh, confession is this moment in which uh, the priest is serving in the place of Christ and, and comforting us, helping us. Uh, it's not just a juridical moment. It's this uh, tremendous pastoral moment where Christ the shepherd is is guiding us, helping us to really see who we're called to be. Uh, so d- does that help? All right. Thank you, Father Anson. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. 
The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.themysticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.